All right, let's get started on part two. Word of caution before we start. I don't have my glasses on, so I can't see you. But I have my hearing aids in, and I can hear you. I can hear you breathing. And these are state-of-the-art hearing aids, so I can hear what you're thinking as well. All right, we're going to get into another aspect of spiritual warfare, one that personally brings you into it. Uh, this was a great start and introduction into it that Jonathan gave you, and it moves us into an even more uh, in-depth situation where we are confronting the enemy and he is confronting us. A lot of folks don't have a complete understanding of spiritual warfare. They tend oftentimes to think of it in terms of uh, spiritual warfare ongoing in the heavenlies, demonic princes over nations and kingdoms, that sort of thing. Daniel 10, 13 gives us a picture of that. Uh, we do tend to think of it in terms of the ministry of casting out demons, uh, and it is that too. But it is also, uh, and what many saints don't realize is, that it invades our lives in the midst of the routine and the mundane. And the enemy is coming against us 24-7. And he is constantly coming against God's people and what God is doing. And he is constantly doing this uh, on high levels and on personal levels as well. So what I want us to do is to look at this, uh, this uh, passage that deals with the spiritual armor, which is what we're going to talk about in the next hour, and which is, of course, very personal to us. And to do that, we're going to start with verse 10, uh, and I'm going to run through verse 18, although verse 18 is not part of the armor per se. Uh, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all uh, of the saints. Now, the first thing I want us to look at is in chapter 6, verse 10. You'll notice that Paul begins verse 10 with the word, finally. And if you're not careful, that can be a little bit misleading 
because when he starts this passage with the word finally, uh, he is not intending that to be an oh by the way or as a postscript. In other words, I've finished the letter, but P.S., keep this in mind. In fact, what he is doing in a sense here by using the word finally is in a, in a real sense, all of the letter to the Ephesians preceding this verse, all of that book of the Ephesians is leading up uh, to this passage. And what he shows us are then verse 10 and verse 11, that there are three things that are absolutely critical uh, to being able to engage in both offensive and defensive spiritual warfare. First, to be strong in the Lord. Second, to be strong in the strength of his might. And third, that you would put on the full armor. And notice it says full armor, not parts of it here and there. Uh, and so what we are being told by the apostle here is that we are not to pick one or more of the three. We have to be walking in all three because they interlock with one another. And so, and when you get down to that, why does Paul say that? Why is it necessary to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and uh, walk uh, in the putting on the full armor of God? And he tells us that in verse 12. Uh, in verse 12, he says, uh, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Uh, and what he is wanting us to understand is that we are not battling against flesh and blood. Why does he say that? Because so often the demonic attacks come through flesh and blood. Uh, it's easier to disguise uh, his attacks if he uses human uh, pawns, if you will, to carry out his attack. I mean, what would you do if you woke up one morning and the Satan said, hi, Satan here, why don't we go down to the shopping center and lust? <laughs> oh, get away from me, Satan. You know, we would be well aware of that. Understand one thing here, folks. We have authority over the enemy in Jesus' name. Why? Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And because we are in Christ, we have that authority. And what he and the enemy knows that. He understands you have authority over him. And so he's very careful to make sure that when he attacks, you don't realize where it's coming from, or you might exercise your authority. And so that is precisely. Uh, the reason why he so often attacks through flesh and blood. And I use this example very often, and most of you have probably heard it, but if you were standing out in the middle of I-30 and an 18-wheeler was coming down on you and you were going to punch its lights out, who would win? The 18-wheeler, right. Why? Because he's more powerful than you are. But if you have a little silver badge on your chest here, uh, that says, I have all the authority of the state of Texas behind me and I hold up my hand, that 18-wheeler is going to come to a screeching halt. It doesn't matter who's more powerful. But the enemy does not want us to understand that we're being attacked so we won't exercise our authority. Because if we deal with him on our level, 
we lose because he's the more powerful being. Now, what, uh, and Jesus recognized himself that the enemy used human intermediaries in order to carry out his attack. You remember in Matthew 16, verse 23, uh, after he told the apostles that he was going to Jerusalem where he was going to be put to death, Peter takes him aside and says, God forbid that that should happen to you. Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and what's he say? Get behind me, Satan. He's not cursing Peter. Don't misunderstand him. But he is recognizing the source of the attack. And that is something that we have to understand and something we have to do. Now, what you'll notice in verse 12, that Paul is listing four levels of demonic power uh, and authority. Now, we can go through those four levels and sort of pinpoint and categorize what each of those are intended to do in Satan's army. But I don't think that's Paul's point. I think what he's wanting us to understand in listing these four areas of demonic authority is to get us to realize that uh, the enemy possesses great power. In his own right, he possesses great authority, although not the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are in massive numbers and highly organized. What he is wanting us to understand is that the enemy is powerful, authoritative, highly organized and massive and operates on every possible level from levels directed at you personally, local, state, national, and international. He operates on all of these levels. And the point is, is you cannot deal with this in the power of your own strength and understanding. Hence, it is necessary to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might and to put on the full armor of the Lord, because apart from those three, you are no match for him. And it's not a question of hiding under your bed so he won't find you. He's got your number. And we are to understand that we're not to be afraid that he has our number, because we got his number too. Uh, and we've got higher authority and greater power. Now, what we're going to be dealing with here primarily uh, is the spiritual armor. Uh, we could take an entire session on being strong in the Lord. We could take several sessions on that and in the strength of his might. Let me just suggest to you uh, in a quick summary that to be strong in the Lord is really talking about the spirit of God in you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, for example, uh, Romans 8.10 and 11. The spirit of the Lord that is working in you not only has brought you into the kingdom, has brought you into the family of God, but is recreating in you the image of Christ, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 23, 22 and 23, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, uh, faithfulness, long-suffering. There's nine listed. Uh, what he is intending uh, to do in that instance uh, is to show that those are the aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more we increase in those, the greater we are uh, in the knowledge of God. We are increasing in the knowledge of God. If you would look at Ephesians 1, 17 through 23, uh, you will uh, see uh, Paul's prayer uh, for the Ephesian church is directed primarily uh, I think, at being strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, uh, his spirit uh, coming upon you. 
in other words, we have the Spirit living in us, but the Spirit also comes upon us to empower us to carry out the purposes for which God has called us. Paul's prayer there is speaking to that in Ephesians 3, uh, verses 14 through 21. So, okay, let's look at the whole armor of God. Um, I like that picture better than the one I gave him. Uh, the one I gave him is me when I was much younger. <laughs> the whole armor of God, and notice that he says the whole armor of God. And before we look at that, I want to bring one other thing to your attention. That's verse 11. He, talks, uh, he mentions twice in verse 11 and verse 14 uh, to put on first the full armor of God in verse 11. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And again, those schemes are designed oftentimes uh, to keep you from understanding who's really attacking you. And then 14, stand firm, therefore, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, uh, therefore take up the full armor of God. Again, second time he tells us to take up the full armor of God. When he tells it to you twice, that means really pay attention. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Let me suggest to you that schemes come first followed by evil day because, and looking at this from a church-wide level, the enemy likes to negate the church with its schemes. And then when the church is thoroughly negated, then comes the day of evil. I would suggest to you that Nazi Germany is a good example of that. Uh, in fact, many evangelical Christians in 1933, uh, don't, uh, my memory of this is, uh, I hope I'm not misquoting, but my understanding is many in the church uh, thought Hitler was a good thing. They did not understand what his real agenda was, but he will come in in a nation, in a culture, he will negate that church with schemes, have them fighting one another, and then comes the day of evil. All right, now, what we want to do is in looking at the armor, it is both defensive and offensive, and each piece is designed for dealing with particular attacks that the enemy will bring against you. Each of these pieces are interlocking, as is the armor itself is interlocked, interlocked with being strong in the Lord and in the spirit uh, and in the strength of his might. Now, First of all, let me give you a little bit of the context of Paul's writing. He is in, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he is writing from Rome. He is in the custody of the Praetorian Guard. Uh, Acts 28, 16 says that he is in the custody of a soldier. He is waiting trial. In Acts, he had demanded in Judea, he had demanded uh, to appeal to Caesar, and so they had sent him to Rome. He was waiting in custody as he waited to appear before the emperor uh, based on the appeal that he had made. Uh, that is referred to in scripture or in teaching as Paul's first imprisonment. So he is writing to them during his first imprisonment. Because he is in the custody of the Praetorian Guard, uh, which is the emperor's personal bodyguard, uh, he has a living model standing next to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were coming to him uh, and standing guard with him on four to six hour uh, intervals so that he was changing out guards. 
I'm fond of saying, and we get this from Philippians 1.12, I'm fond of saying I used to initially think poor Paul standing in the custody of a Roman soldier with them changing shifts every four to six hours, 24-7. Then I got to thinking about the Apostle Paul, and then I thought, poor soldier, chained to the Apostle Paul. Uh, at the time that he was in custody of the Praetorian Guard, that was the Emperor Nero. There were 9,000 Praetorians. And we know from Philippians 1.12, he says, God has worked my imprisonment for good, for all of the Praetorian Guard have heard and know that I am in chains for Christ. And then in Philippians 4, when he's sending greetings to the people that he's writing to, he says, even those in Caesar's household send you greetings. He was knocking them off is what he was doing because the Praetorian Guard was part of Caesar's household. They were the elite of the Roman army. Now let's talk a little bit about the Roman soldier, uh, and that one will do fine. Um, the Roman soldier, the average Roman soldier was five foot two. Uh, the people around the Mediterranean coasts uh, were generally short people. The Roman soldier in Paul's time uh, embraced hardship. Uh, Paul says that to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, they not only embraced hardship, but their meals, their cuisine was uh, lousy. They ate, uh, and what they did is they ate a cereal mush, they disdained meat. Uh, they drank sour wine, uh, which was primarily today we would call it vinegar. When Jesus was on the cross and he was thirsting and he said, I thirst, uh, and they handed him a sponge on a stick soaked in vinegar, I don't think they were trying to be cruel. I think the Roman soldier that was at the foot of the cross poured him a drink out of his canteen, I think is what that boils down to. When they enlisted in the Roman legions, they enlisted for 25 years. Now, when you consider that the lifespan in Jesus' time was the average lifespan was 29, that can be an extensive part of your life uh, if you're in the legions for 25 years. Uh, they were not supposed to marry, although while they were on duty, uh, without the permission of the emperor, although a good many of them did anyway, and they were paid off at the end of their enlistment as soldiers uh, with citizenship and land. Uh, they did not hesitate to take forced marches. And when they did, uh, they often carried, each man carried 60 to 75 pounds, which included his armor, his weapons, his equipment, and his shield. Additionally, they each carried two large palisade stakes on their shoulders because whenever they bivouacked at night, they built a fort around the legions, which would have looked something like Fort Apache if you'd come on it uh, in the middle of the night. It was in order uh, to be protected uh, against sudden night attacks by the, uh, an enemy. Uh, and at the, end of the day, at the end of the night, they disassembled the fort. Every guy put his part on his shoulder, and off they went. Uh, they were men of in tremendous endurance, uh, they were often on the duty, on duty and on the march. Their salary sometimes consisted of cubes of salt, which was in certain parts of the empire desperately needed. That's where we get 
the word salary, and that's where we also get the word a man is not worth his salt. Now, the best of analogies will fail, folks. The Roman armor had its limited uses, and it was discarded. God's armor is permanent, uh, and we don't just put it on mentally every day. I know some folks say, well, I get up in the morning, and I put the armor on in my, you know, mentally every day. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I hope when you, we get through with this, you'll understand that there's more to the pieces uh, of the armor, and they represent not so much parts as spiritual conditions uh, and levels of understanding and, in some cases, maturity. Uh, the other thing that I want you to see, too, is that with, uh, and so often when you read articles on it, you think in terms of a single Roman soldier. But you mustn't think about Paul's description here of the armor in terms of a single individual. That's the American way of thinking, rugged independence. That is not the way they thought, and that is not what Paul is intending. He is using the term you in the plural. And so when you think of putting on the armor, you need to think of that in terms of collective. We're not talking about a single soldier, you being a single soldier. We are talking about soldiers who make up a legion. And so you need to recognize that when we're talking about putting on the spiritual armor, uh, that we are talking about a legion. One of the great strengths of the Roman legions was their tremendous unity. And that application applies equally to the church. The great enemy generals who came against the Romans who actually defeated them, normally their tactics were designed to break up that unity. Because as long as the Roman legions remained unified, they were nearly impossible to beat. And the enemy attacks the church the same way. It's the unity of the believer that does tremendous damage to the kingdom of darkness. And his attacks are going to be aimed not just at you individually, but in using you to be a source of damage to the entire church that he might break up the unity uh, that is in the church. He's got to keep us separated or he's got problems. He knows it is a problem. The other problem is... Well, that's not a problem. The problem for us is we don't know that. We don't seem to understand that. We put our own rights ahead of everybody else, and we don't understand that. The Roman legions did not put an individual soldier's rights above everybody else. They were uh, connected, and they were, we'll see in a minute, uh, their connection was physical in the way in which that was done. All right, let's look at the first piece, because I'm going to try to go through this uh, as rapidly as I can. Uh, the first piece of the, uh, is the belt of truth, which we have in verse 14. The Roman belt was normally put on first. Uh, it was called the ginculum. Uh, it covered the loins uh, with leather strips. In this case, this picture would indicate that the loins are being covered by metal strips, uh, probably leather strips with uh, metal over them. Uh, it helped keep the breastplate in place and hold it fast. On the belt, it was also, now you don't see that in this one because he seems to have a strap on, but it was on the belt that they kept their sword, their dagger, their canteens, their pots and pans. The belt was extremely critical uh, to the Roman armor. Uh, but it's even more critical to the spiritual armor. Like the Roman armor, the belt is the first thing we put on, 
and it affects, and Jim Sundberg was saying this earlier this morning, he's absolutely right, it affects all of the rest of the armor. The rest of the armor, in a sense, if you will, flows out of this belt of truth. And if you don't have the belt of truth, I will tell you, you don't have any of the rest of it. Uh, you are absolutely naked without the belt of truth. Uh, and every piece of armor is based on uh, the belt of truth. What do we mean then by the belt of truth? Because we run into a lot of statements about truth. Let me suggest to you that Jesus is saying something very similar uh, in John 8, uh, 31, uh, a verse that I think many of you will be very familiar with. Jesus says this in John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And then verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, there are various aspects of truth. The Lord Jesus himself, we know from John uh, 14, 6, is truth. We know that the word of God is truth. We know from Psalm 51, uh, 6, that God desires truth in the inner parts. But, and all of those are true. But let me suggest to you that what I think Paul specifically has in mind that fits what Jesus is saying in John 8, 31 and 32 is when he talks about truth, he is talking about the primary fundamental doctrines of the faith. Knowing and understanding the basic doctrines upon which faith and redemption, <coughs> excuse me, rest. Look at 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be, adequately, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Uh, and understanding this, folks, it is not simply knowing the doctrines just for the sake of acquiring information, but we come to know the great doctrines upon which our redemption rests in order to come to know God personally. Because he has chosen to reveal himself in the scriptures first and foremost and does so through the great doctrines. Uh, that's why uh, J.I. Packer, uh, his tremendous book for us laymen on fundamental doctrine, and you ought to get it and read it if you haven't, is called Knowing God. Because he knows if he says fundamental doctrine, nobody will read it. Nobody wants to learn fundamental doctrine. That's the idea of dull, dull, dull. They think they're going to start looking at some deep theology with all these different words uh, that don't make any sense and they have to have a dictionary to read. Uh, at Grace University, I teach three courses, spiritual warfare, the Holy Spirit, and fundamental doctrine. Spiritual warfare and the Holy Spirit are often well attended. Fundamental doctrine, eh. So I've decided from here on that when we teach fundamental doctrine, the name of the title and the, of, the, of this course will be Learning who the Antichrist really is. <laughs> that ought to get them in. 
if you don't know your fundamental doctrine, folks, you're in trouble. I mean, that's the first part of the armor. Some people are already uh, in trouble uh, because they don't know it. Jesus said in John 4, 22 through 24, talking to the woman at the well, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so what happens is the Spirit of God takes the truth of the Scripture and makes it personal and brings it home to you. You have to have both. And you have to understand what the great doctrines of the faith are. When Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, what is he referring to? Free from what? Free from sin, free from death, free from the devil. You're free from those three. Everything else uh, is blessed. You're free from those three. Now, uh, what we don't uh, understand, too, is that if you, don't have your, if you don't have your belt on right, your breastplate's loose. In fact, you may not even have a breastplate on if your doctrine is really lousy because your breastplate will be faulty, it'll be loose, uh, and by knowing great doctrine, we're able to discern the false teaching that is permeating the church. And this is an area that that, is, that, that's, that belt is designed to protect against a demonic attack. And one of the great demonic attacks today is false doctrine. And it is flooding the church today. Um, and people don't know it's flooding the church today because they don't know they're hearing false teaching and false doctrine because they don't understand. 82% of the people, it was said in a Wheaton survey not, oh, too many years ago, thought that Sodom was married to Gomorrah. Now, that's Christians. That's nonsense. Sodom was married to Delilah. We all know that. Uh, Jude 3 says this, Jude, the book of Jude is written to the Christian uh, church warning them against the influx of false teachers, false prophets, and false doctrine. And in third chapter, a third verse, there's only one chapter in Jude, third verse of Jude says, uh, I am writing you to urge you to contend for the faith. When he says the faith, he's not talking about the quality of faith by which we are saved. The faith means the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And when he uses the word contend for, the word that was used in those days for that word contend meant hand-to-hand -hand combat. In other words, what Jude is suggesting is that the need to preserve and fight for the doctrine is a matter of life and death. And it is a matter of intense combat, and we are under tremendous attack right now. And we have got stuff coming out that the Christian bookstores and Christian radio stations are pushing because they haven't bothered to check it out carefully, and people don't know that they're buying poison and drinking it. My favorite example is The Shack. I won't ask you how many of you read it, but a good many Christians read it. It was a bestseller. Millions bought it. Uh, bookstores were pushing it. I heard it pushed on Christian radio. I had numerous friends tell me how wonderful it was, and I should get it and read it, so I did. It's teaching universalism, folks. That is contrary to the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And most people had no idea what they were reading. Why? Because they don't know. They don't have their belt on. Uh, they don't realize they don't have their belt on. Uh, we're also another one that you're constantly hearing, and that is deeds, not creeds. In other words, don't worry about the doctrinal foundations. Just love Jesus. That's nonsense. 
The creeds come because we know the, the deeds come because we know the creeds. The doctrine is the basis for application in the Christian life. If you just love Jesus, eventually you'll turn that into a selfish love that excuses your sin. But God's love and the love of Christ is always presented within a doctrinal context. First uh, John, for example, 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Ephesians 5.2, uh, uh, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. The love of God is always presented within a doctrinal context. If you don't understand that, uh, you are going to twist the love of God into something that allows you to do what you want to do. Uh, now, I'm not talking to you personally. Uh, I, I know me well enough to know that a lot of me is sitting out there. Uh, we are all vulnerable to that, and the enemy understands that. Now... Um, Doctrine also impacts your worship, and it impacts your prayer. The more you know God, the deeper you worship. The more you know him, the greater your prayer. St. Augustine once said this in the opening chapter, opening line uh, to his book, The Confessions, and this was written the 397, and it hasn't changed. Shall I praise you before I know you? No, I must know you before I praise you, lest I praise you amiss. What Augustine is saying is you can't enter into worship if you don't know him. And if you don't know him, it's because you don't know your doctrine. Because they are, I'm, let me rephrase that. You can't enter into worship if you don't know him. And knowing your doctrine is the fundamental basis of beginning to come to know him. Okay, let us go on to the breastplate of righteousness. I'm moving fast. Uh, the name of the breast, uh, the, what we call the breastplate of righteousness, or the breastplate that the Roman soldier wore, and this is a good example of it. Uh, it's referred to as, and here's a little Latin for you, lorica segmentata. Okay, you'll remember that right. Lorica segmentata. Okay, I'm a tremendous Latin scholar. Uh, the only thing I know in Latin is etu brute and e pluribus unum. But it is the word lorica segmentata uh, is in in, intended to give you an understanding of how it looks. And it covered the vital organs, the heart, the liver, uh, the uh, stomach, uh, and it could prevent a fatal blow from being received uh, in that area of your body. Uh, it was thick leather straps laid over with uh, metal plates, and that's exactly what you see there. Uh, you notice that he had shoulder pieces uh, that were similar. They looked sort of like barrel hoops the, in the chest going around the soldier. And then you have the metal plates that uh, cover his shoulders. That was extremely important because in spiritual warfare, one of the things that the enemy sought to do was sever your arm, either your, your sword arm preferably or your shield arm. In the spiritual armor, the enemy will do the same thing. If he gets your sword arm, he gets your testimony. If he gets your shield arm, he gets your faith. He will attack those two about you. If your testimony is destroyed, you got nothing to say. And he will 
invariably attack those two areas. Uh, the ancient warfare was no different, and so they had this covering uh, over their shoulders. Their chest was protected by these, this metal or iron bands. Now, I don't know if you can see here, but see each of these iron bands around his chest, the one on top loops over the one below it, and the, one, the next one loops over the one below it. The purpose of that was so that a sword thrust coming down would not come between those strips. It was much, you had to get a sword thrust up like that to get up between those strips to get into uh, the man's uh, vital organs. It was much harder to do it this way than to do it this way. And so that was designed to protect them from a downward thrust. Um, the uh, loose or ill-fitting breastplate uh, was bad news in battle. It tended to distract and it gave the soldier a sense of vulnerability. Now, the breastplate of righteousness, what is that? That comes out of our justification in Christ. That is the shed blood of Christ. He bore our sins on the cross, uh, and he paid our judgment. And in return, God imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that is the breastplate that we're wearing. And it's very important because his righteousness covers us. It's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. And that righteousness is what is covering us. Uh, and God, when he looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. And when we stand before God, the judgment of God will be made against human, or when we humans stand before God, his judgment, the criteria of his judgment will be the righteousness of Christ. You have it. You've got it on. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Now, sanctification, that is us walking through this world. God is using trials and even the enemy to so develop us so that we change into the image of Christ. In justification, God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Because we have received Christ, we have received what he's done for us, we're trusting in him for uh, our position before God because we are justified and God imputes his righteousness to us God sees us, he sees righteousness in Christ. When he's completed with sanctification, he has imparted righteousness to us. What do I mean by that? When the world looks at us, they see Christ. Uh, you with me on the difference? But the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness comes as a result of receiving salvation and having been justified and having God impute uh, the righteousness of Christ. It covers our hearts. Uh, and Psalm 32, for example, how blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We're covered and we're always covered. We are never not covered. You go to bed with the breastplate of righteousness on, you get up with it on. Because if you're in Christ, the breastplate of righteousness is there, and it is always uh, in place. And it protects against one of the devil's primary attacks against Christians, and that is condemnation. Uh, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. It doesn't say most of those who are in Christ Jesus, and it doesn't say most of the time. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And many times in ministering to people and praying for them, 
Christian people will come to me and they're under tremendous attack in condemnation. The enemy comes in and condemns them. In a group this size, some of you are suffering from the enemy's attack of condemnation against you. You are not under condemnation. You may buy into what he tells you, but you're buying into a lie. I don't care, you know, how lousy he's made you feel. You are not condemned, and it's his major attack, and the breastplate is designed uh, to deal with that. And one thing I usually do when I talk to folks uh, about this subject, and many of you have heard this before, and that is learn to distinguish between the devil's accusations and the Holy Spirit's conviction. The devil will accuse and condemn. You sorry good-for-nothing you know, God won't have anything to do with you now. How many times have you committed that sin? You just can't seem to get out of it, can you? You're a waste, and you might as well shut up and sit down because you're a damage to the rest of the church. Sound familiar? I hope not. <laughs> but I've heard it. The problem is, is that if we listen to that, and he's the one that tempted us into the sin in the first place, then when you go ahead and fall into your old habits, he condemns you. It's not God's intention that you stay in your old habits. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, oh, well, I'll sin all I want because I'm not under condemnation. That's complete perversion. But the enemy will accuse you and attack you and condemn you. God never attacks his people and condemns them. He will bring them under conviction. Under conviction is a producing of a godly sorrow, a sense that you have grieved uh, the Spirit. That is conviction. That leads, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, that leads to life. Condemnation leads to death. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Before we were in Christ, sin mandated one thing, condemnation. Now that we are in Christ and have been forgiven, sin mandates one thing, justification. I'm sorry, sin mandates forgiveness. In us, that's what's just in Christ. He will also um, he'll, uh, forgive our sins like that but then cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that's a process that he brings us through so that we don't keep sinning and he has to keep forgiving. You with me? But it's the breastplate of righteousness uh, that protects us. Also, the enemy will attack you with condemnation by getting to, to focus on a couple of things. One is the past guilt. And the best term that I can think of that is uh, if only. If only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't said that. Now understand, if you've done things wrong, you need to deal with them. If you've offended people, you need to deal with it. But so often, the enemy will condemn you with guilt. The other way he will try to condemn you is fear. What if? Uh, he will attack you in both ways. Um, but you fall back on the promises. If God is for us, who is against us? Now you understand the scriptures, you fall back 2 Corinthians 1, 20, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Uh, they apply to every one of us. Uh, for God is not a, uh, Numbers 23, 19, for God is not a man that he should lie. Has he not said and will he not do it? Has he not pr promised and will he not perform it? 
Your breastplate is always in place. Your breastplate guards you against condemnation. If you're condemned, it's because you're not paying attention to what God has told you about yourself. Are you with me? Okay. Let's go to the shoes of the gospel of peace. Uh, the Roman shoe, uh, that one's pretty good, uh, there was uh, wrapped about the lower leg and it wrapped around and wrapped around the ankles and around the feet. Uh, it was designed to strengthen the ankles because the ankles are rather weak. Uh, the shoes contained hobnails on the bottom of them. Uh, the purpose of them was for a firm fitting. Uh, and it didn't work sometimes in streets. Josephus tells us in street fighting in Jerusalem, when the Romans took Jerusalem, uh, the Roman soldier frequently fell over because he couldn't get a grip on the pavement uh, with hobnails on his shoes. But most of their battles were fought in the land, in fields, and, and those hobnails enabled them to have a tremendous grip. The purpose of it was to enable them to stand in battle. If they were knocked off their feet, that could often be a fatal experience for the one knocked off his feet. The other problem was if he was knocked off his feet, he became a hazard to the others who could then trip over him. The spiritual use is this. Four times in the passage we've read, Paul says to stand uh, and one thing that we aren't to be doing is laying down. When you came to Christ, you came to a battlefield. If you're picnicking on the battlefield, you're casually about to happen. Paul says stand firm four times. One of the things you notice about this armor is there doesn't seem to be any protection for the backside. We're not supposed to be running. We're supposed to be standing firm and we're supposed to be facing uh, one of the great tremendous aspects of the legions was their ability to move rapidly. At one point, as when they invaded Germany, the Rhine was in flood stage. The Germans figured, we don't have to worry for some weeks. They won't get over that. The Romans showed up about five weeks sooner than they expected them because they were moving rapidly. They threw a bridge across the Rhine uh, in one week flat, and they were across the Rhine and moving into Germany before the Germans understood what was going on. Uh, the gospel spreads like wildfire, folks. Uh, it is a powerful, virulent thing. And the people all around us are hungry to know spiritual things. And as this world becomes more and more chaotic, the more and more people that understand what's going on, and lots of unbelievers are beginning to get the picture, they are going to start turning to those who seem to be able to stand firm. You with me? Yes. I mean, this is a tremendous, powerful picture of the power and the strength of the gospel. On top of that, Revelation 1.12 says that they overcame the enemy uh, by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. The gospel has come into your life. He has changed your life. What is the word of your testimony? It is the evidence of changed life. That's one thing. I don't care how deep into the other side you are. You cannot argue with changed lives. And when people come forward who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, who walk according to the gospel, they live changed lives, and their friends and their neighbors know it. They may not like it, but they have to admit uh, that they are living changed lives. The only way to really defeat the enemy is to be able to stand by the blood of Christ with the word of your testimony because that sort of thing he has no attack for. 
There is nothing he can do uh, to stop that. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you also stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, the feet of the gospel refer also, and this is significant in ancient times, Something that was put under your foot, you were in dominion over. A king that was defeated by the Romans was made to come, and the, and the Roman general or emperor put his foot on the head of the conquered enemy. That stood for taking dominion. What do we know in Ephesians 1, 20, 22, 23? For God has raised him from the dead, placed him above all authority, both in this world and in the next. And where has he placed the authority? Placed all authority under his feet. Look at Ephesians. Verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over the things to the church, which is body the fullness of him who fills all and in all. The gospel subdues it's the foot is used to talk about the gospel because the gospel is what takes dominion. When the gospel comes into a nation, uh, it's like a ship, the bow of a ship plowing through water. And that ship, as it plows through water, creates what's called a bow wave that moves out across, away from either side of the ship. And that's exactly what happens when the gospel takes root in a nation. Not only do people get saved and dominion is taken over the enemy, but it causes to spring up Christian schools, Christian universities, Christian hospitals, orphanages. That, all that sort of thing results because the gospel comes in. And then it takes dominion. Uh, it takes uh, complete dominion. Um, and one of the things that really works in terms of opening the door to the gospel is tremendous intercessory prayer. We probably won't have a chance to get to that in verse 18. But Jim, again, is right. The full armor is rooted in prayer. And it is prayer that enables the gospel to go forward uh, and gives uh, the enemy's uh, control, breaks the enemy's control so often over areas that it is held in darkness. Okay, the, incidentally, folks, the gospel is the only answer to the world's problem. It's not government. Uh, it's not careful programs. The world is in chaos right now because they do not understand that the cause of problems are spiritual and they are trying to fix spiritual problems with external band-aids. And they are falling into chaos because it isn't working. It never worked. It never will work. The gospel is the only answer because it changes hearts. And that's the root of the problems that we have. All right, let's talk about the shield of faith. Uh, the shield of faith was referred to in the Latin as a scutum. It, scutum, it meant door. And the reason it meant door was because it was uh, four and a half feet long and two and a half feet wide. That shield was uh, probably a little longer than that uh, in the picture. 
you could actually kind of hide behind the door, uh, if you will, because the shield covered that much of the soldier. It was made of planks, layers of leather that were laid over the planks and then embossed with uh, metal over the, the planks. Uh, they used a formation called the tortoise formation uh, that was designed to protect them. How did the tortoise formation work? Roman soldiers on the front line would lock their shields. The soldiers behind them would place their shields over their head and cover the man in front of them. The soldiers on the left flank would have their shields on this side. Soldiers on the right flank would have their shields on that side. Uh, and the soldiers in the back kept their shields on the back. They were a moving armored tank. Uh, and they were tremendously effective. And one of the values of locking shields was because as they moved toward the battle line and where this is most commonly used by them was in the attack against fortresses and other fortifications because as they came up against the walls to scale those walls, they frequently had heavy rocks and hot oil poured down on them. And these shields over their heads that bounced off. In fact, in one attack in Jerusalem, uh, the defenders could not stop the Roman tur tortoise uh, with heavy rocks and hot oil. They finally pushed a tower over on them, which destroyed some of their own defenses. But they were panicky because they couldn't stop it because they were locked together. When they came against infantry attack, what happened oftentimes is they moved forward. They took heavy attack from arrows and uh, archery and from what we called a ballista. They had heavy artillery. That was a huge spear that was thrown at them. Uh, could take two or three guys out at one time. It was thrown by what one would, like a catapult, sort of like a giant crossbow. And these shields were designed to protect them against that so that they could get in and do their work with their short sword. If a man took a hit on his shield and were stunned, he had two people on either side that might help him, hold him up. When they got to the battle line, they might not all be conscious, but they all got there because they were helping uh, one another and locking their shields together. Uh, one emperor is known to have required, to, the way he tested the strength of his legion was to have them stand there in the tor tortoise formation, and he drove his horses and chariots across them. Uh, that is how strong and how powerful individual shields are, but when they are brought together, uh, how strong they are, the entire legion is protected, just like the entire church is protected. Uh, Josephus tells us that at the siege in Jerusalem, the Romans locked shields, and it had a tremendous uh, impact on the defenders. Now, it says here that it protects us against fiery darts, uh, flaming arrows, and spears. Uh, you want to see a good example of an ancient Roman battle? I'm not necessarily recommending Gladiator, but go look at the opening battle scene of Gladiator. That's pretty accurate. That'll give you a great picture of exactly what he's talking about with flaming arrows coming at, coming at you and that sort of thing. Uh, now, how does it work in terms of the spiritual armor, the enemy, what are his flaming arrows? They are unlimited. But I would suggest to you in terms of us individually, uh, they, he likes most often to hit us with the flaming arrows of despair, hopelessness, discouragement, fear, anxiety, grief, lust, perplexity. Paul says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, uh, perplexed uh, but not... Let's see, what does he say? He says perplexed, uh, but not uh, discouraged, I think, is what he says. But it, he is under the attack of the enemy. He says, 
Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Uh, the enemy will throw that sort of thing at you. Anxiety, uh, depression, uh, and disappointment, failure, guilt, all of those things are fiery arrows that he will fire at you. Sometimes when we take a hit, we're weak. That's why we lock shields in the church, because we need those around us to hold us up when we've been hit. And they'll hold you up because they're going to get hit sooner or later too. And so the church comes together and holds one another up and stands on behalf of one another. One of my favorite examples is not Roman warfare, but ancient Greek warfare. They fought in pairs. And the guy that was with you, that was paired with you, his, desire, his purpose was to protect you, to protect your backside. If you were injured or wounded, to stand over you and protect you and get you back to safety so that the enemy didn't come get you. The one that stood with you in Greek warfare was called the paraclete. Parakletos. Jesus said, I will send you the helper. Same word. And the Holy Spirit. He too locks shields with us and stands with us. Uh, this is a tremendous uh, picture of what the enemy uh, tries to do and how we stand against him. Now, he also, what he will want to do is break those shields apart so he can damage the church. Uh, and the people he uses to do that are gossips, uh, backbiters, criticizers. Uh, gossip is contagious. Uh, Proverbs 26, 26 says it's like tender morsels, tasty morsels that go down into the innermost man. He wants to create offenses between Christians uh, so that he can break those shields apart uh, and come into the church and begin to do damage to the church. In Philippians 4, 2 and 3, Paul calls Yodi and Syntyche by name and he says these two sisters are fighting with each other. Help them. Why? They're in danger of being a source for the enemy to come in and do damage to the Philippian church because as they fight with one another and they tell others about their problem, the ones they talk to take up the offense and become angry. It's like a chain reaction. You with me? You see how dangerous it is not to deal with offenses the way God tells you to. I used to be with a group that came in to churches and helped work out. Uh, we were with a conciliation group, came in to work out problems in a church, especially when there had been a church split. I will tell you, when there's a church split, the enemy has broken through the shields. And oftentimes they were all dead already. They were more interested in being correct than they were in the truth. Uh, and the enemy can turn everything against within in a church once he breaks through. He uses people to do that by failing to deal with offenses the way God tells you to with gossips and backbiters. Okay, let's talk real quick about the sword of the spirit. The Roman short sword was the M16 of its day. And I haven't been in the military in a while. Is there something better than the M16 today besides the ICBM? Okay, the Roman short sword was uh, state-of-the-art weaponry. Uh, they conquered wherever they went for the most part. Uh, it was a double-edged blade. It was pointed uh, as well. A lot of swords in those days were not both. Uh, you could either slash or you could thrust, but you couldn't slash and thrust. And why that was so hard to figure out, I don't know, but the Romans figured it out. Uh, and so they had uh, a double-edged blade that was pointed. It had bone handle, which is very interesting. The bone handle had grooves in it. And the reason for the grooves is, is in order that they might grip that 
hilt. Uh, it gave you a better grip on it. On top of that, the hilt also had, uh, as a rule, two leather straps attached to it so they could tie the, the sword to their wrist uh, because uh, there was a, a rule among, in the legions that if you came out of a battle without either your shield or your sword, it could be considered desertion. So they made, and that was not a happy thing to happen to you, to be charged with desertion in the Roman legions. So what they did is they, on the sword, they tied the sword to their wrist. If they lost their sword, they lost their hand too. It was pretty good defense to, de to desertion. But the point was is they wanted to have a tremendous grip uh, on that sword. And uh, the uh, spiritual use is just as much effective. Hebrews uh, 12, uh, real quick. Verse 4, and this is one of my favorite verses. I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, verse 12. Uh, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both points and marrow, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Actually, the word here. Uh, really, uh, two-edged sword really doesn't, in this case, refer to the Roman short sword. It really is describing a scalpel, which is even more precise. Uh, and it's referring to the Word of God as being extremely precise. Now, when we talk about the sword of the Spirit and being able to use it, we are not using that. It's the Word of God, but we're not using it in the sense of the belt when we're talking about fundamental doctrine. What we are now talking about is using the sword in an offensive manner, not offensive, but taking the offense. Uh, in other words, it's one thing to cram the Bible down people's throat. It's another thing to use it like a scalpel. Uh, and we fail, I think, many times to understand just how effective the scriptures can be in witnessing. Second uh, uh, Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, examples that I've used before, I'll use one, I could use several, uh, and that is of a, uh, when I was in the Navy, I was a discipline officer, uh, besides deciding, I was the legal officer at the air base, and I was the discipline officer, and it was my job to decide when somebody messed up how, how serious it was gonna be, either handled at captain's mast, which was one of the lesser uh, uh, lesser punishments that could be given at mast or court-martial, and there were three levels of court-martial. And so I would interview these people and make a decision and then recommend to the command whether they got mast or a particular court-martial. And I was interviewing a sailor at one point, uh, and I was interviewing him for the possibility of having him go to mast. I've forgotten what his charges were. Uh, but he and I got into a spiritual discussion. And he turned out to be an atheist. And he wasn't just an atheist. He was a hostile atheist, very hostile toward Christianity. And so we talked for about, I don't know how long, probably 45 minutes or an hour, just on spiritual things, not taking him to mast, uh, but on spiritual things. It's sort of like we, he forgot we were in the military. I had bars on my collar, and he had stripes on his sleeve. It got pretty uh, dicey, but I wouldn't have held that against him. 
uh, because we were talking about spiritual things. At one point, near the end of our conversation, the phone rang. It was a friend of mine on the phone. I talked to the friend about three minutes. I said, I have got to go. I'm in the middle of something. I didn't usually take phone calls. This one I did. And I said, I'm just about done with this conversation. And I cited to my friend on the phone a verse. I don't remember what it was. I hung up the phone. I looked at the sailor, and he was in tears. And the verse, whatever it was, had absolutely cut him in two. It was like a sharper sword that divided spirit and soul. And he was a big guy. <laughs> I mean, the two of us were not, not matched for each other at all. And he was weeping. And about five minutes later, he came to Christ. It wasn't me, folks. It was the word. It was the sword of the spirit that did it. And if you know your word, you can use that sword very, very effectively. We went to captain's mass the next day. Of course, I'm, that doesn't get him out of his problem. Uh, but what we did is we had the sailors that were going to mass lined up in the hallway outside the commander's door. Uh, and we would bring one sailor in at a time to the captain's office. But I could hear him. I was in the office with the captain with each sailor, but I could hear him out in the hall sharing Christ with those next to me. It was a legitimate conversion, and it, that conversion is strictly from the Word of God. And I can tell you again and again and again, story after story, but we don't have time, where the Word of God is what grips them. Romans 10:17. for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Your testimony when you are sharing Christ is important, but it needs to be together with the word of God. You with me? Okay, one other thing and we're done. Pardon? I'm coming to that. That's the one other thing. The helmet of salvation. All right. It's made of, it's a leather cap uh, that is, uh, and over it uh, is um, made of metal. Usually the metal was iron or bronze, um, and it fit on top actually of the leather cap that they wore that protected them against the metal. A metal plate that went down the back that protected the neck. Uh, it protected particularly that, see that metal plate there? It was designed primarily to protect them from a hit on the juggler vein. If they cut their juggler vein, they were dead within seconds. Uh, so they were extremely vulnerable uh, in their back. Um, the side plates were down on the cheeks, uh, were of metal. They were tied together under the chin uh, with a leather strap. And that, of course, uh, protected the sides of their face. It also kept the helmet intact in place. Uh, it protected, obviously, the brain, the eyes, the ears, the juggler vein in the neck. Uh, the helmet of salvation protects our minds uh, because when we receive salvation and that salvation, the gospel actually grips our heart. It turns around and transforms our mind. The mind is the gateway into the heart to receive the gospel, but once the gospel has been received by the heart, the heart is captured. It turns around and transforms the mind. Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24, we won't read it, uh, but one of the ways in which it transforms the mind is you now have different values from the rest of the world. You now have uh, eternal perspective. One of the problems that our culture has right now is they have adopted 
uh, a philosophy that does not have an eternal perspective and therefore they are prepared to do whatever they have to do to stay alive. Uh, the, the Christian has an eternal perspective. He knows this is not the end. He knows that death is now no longer a realm to be feared. Death is actually a doorway into the presence of God and into the presence of Christ. It makes a tremendous difference when you understand the ramifications of the resurrection and that's what uh, salvation does for us. It changes our values. It changes our understanding. We now see events and facts that come at us pass through that grid uh, of Christian uh, salvation. Our minds are affected and we evaluate everything according to what we understand from him. Uh, what, if this is reason he does this last because all these other pieces help transform our minds and affect the way we see things and affect the values and the opinions that we have. Um, um, and Satan tries to attack through worldly ideas and worldly philosophies. Let me tell you folks, you go to movies, you watch TV, I'm not being legalistic, I'm just telling you the way it is. Hollywood has a different agenda. It is very much against the Christian life. And it teaches that a lot of sin is just getting rid of those repressions and getting into freedom. It is actually bondage. But many Christians buy into the idea, for example, of extramarital sex. Well, everybody does it. And you watch the movies and you read the books, that's what you get. Uh, it's now just like, oh, that's just normal. We just do that all the time. Uh, that is complete nonsense. It is the attack of the enemy. He is prince of the power of the air, uh, and he's got control of the air, and you subject yourself to that. Sooner or later, certain residual effects are going to build up in you. I hear Christians that I know are Christians who constantly spend their time in what the world has to say, and they start coming out with some of the dumbest statements. And it doesn't even occur to them that they are far removed from what Scripture says. Uh, and uh, you, if you don't have a biblical worldview, you're in trouble. And I'm hearing more and more people in the church who make statements that tell me they don't have a biblical worldview. It is the helmet of salvation that gives you that biblical worldview. Uh, and subjecting yourself to what the world has to say uh, is a major mistake, in my opinion. Uh, in fact, if you've got the helmet of salvation on, you don't want to hear that. Filthy language is common. Uh, it's everywhere. Uh, just, you know what I'm talking about. You live in this world, too. You're sensible people. You don't, you don't need me telling you that. Uh, but our minds, though, folks, are being renewed in Jesus, and Satan's attack is frequently on Christians against the mind. And you live in a culture that is aimed at attacking your mind. Let me just, from, uh, let me just give you uh, some things that indicate Satan attacks the mind and we'll be just about done. Second uh, Corinthians 4.4, 4, he blinds the mind. Second Corinthians 3.14, he hardens the mind. Second Corinthians 11.3, he corrupts the mind. Titus 1.15, he defiles the mind. Second Corinthians 4.8, he confuses the mind. Luke 12.29, he unsettles the mind. James 1.8, he diverts the mind. Hebrews 12.3, he discourages the mind. 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2, he deceives the mind. Ephesians 4.17 and 18, he darkens the mind. 
uh, you get the impression that he is attacking our minds. The helmet of salvation is designed to protect that. Let me tell you one story and we're done. Uh, contrary to common belief, I did not fight in the Civil War. <laughs> However, I am old enough to have known World War I veterans. And when I was in world history as a sophomore in high school, our world history teacher brought her uncle, who had fought in World War I, in to tell us what it was like to be in the trenches. And he told a story that, of course, at the time I didn't realize had impact on what I just said. But he was saying that at one point, um, the American regiment that he was in was brought into the trenches, and they were brought in next to a British regiment that had been there for some time. And he said they were literally a stone's throw away from the German trenches. Um, uh, the, Ger they, the Germans had a hand grenade, which uh, was, you may remember from World War II, if you go that far back, called the potato masher. You remember, what the, you remember that? Anybody remember a potato masher? Yeah, it was a handle in what looked like it was in a tin can, but it was a German hand grenade. They were not very effective in World War I. You never knew when they were going off. You could, pull the, you could activate it and it'd go off, which was unfortunate for the activator. Uh, but once you threw it, you weren't sure when it would go off. Um, he tells a story at one point of they're all in the trenches. The Americans have just come in in the last few days. The British are there. They're dog-tired. And one evening, a German potato masher falls down into their trenches. That's why I said they were a stone's throw away. They were a grenade's throw away from the German trenches. And so the Americans start running to get out of there. Have you ever seen pictures of Larry, Curly, and Moe trying to get through a door at the same time? Each one pulling the other out of the way so the other one can go through. That's what the Americans were trying to do to get out of those trenches. But a German, I mean a British Tommy, a British infantryman, looks at it and says, looks down at it and says, oh, someone just threw a grenade at us. And he picks it up and he says, now that was inhospitable. And he says, but is more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> and he throws it back. Well, the Americans start coming back in. And a sec few seconds later, I guess, a grenade falls down in their trench. The Americans start trying to get out of there. The same British soldier picks it up and says, oh, not again. Looks at it and he says, I wonder if it's the same blooming grenade they threw a minute ago. You know what? Let's mark it and see. Pulls his, his uh, bayonet out and he marks it. And then he throws it back. A minute or so later, grenade comes down into their trench. The British soldier picks it up. Yep, same one. Here's me, Mark. He throws it back. Eventually it goes off. Let me suggest to you, folks, that the enemy will put thoughts in your mind similar to that potato masher. You can deal with it because you're in Christ, and you can take that thought and you can surrender it to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5, or you can play with it till it goes off. That you don't have to accept the thoughts that he gives you. Okay, we need to quit. Um, I rarely get through the whole armor, but I did this time. So <laughs> nice to be with you.